The scripture for today's sermon is Mark 12, 35 through 44. The word of God speaks to us. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. This is the word of God to us. All right. Good morning, guys. We doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. Um, man, I want to welcome you if you're a guest or if you're here as a part of the family that uh, is having some of their babies dedicated. We're really glad that you're with us today. Uh, we're working through the Gospel of Mark as a church. And so if you've got a Bible, open up to the passage that was just read, Mark chapter 12, 35 to 44. It's where we're going to be. Uh, in the context or the frame of the book of Mark, we're sort of at the end uh, of, of the narrative. Uh, this is the last week of the life of Jesus, Passion Week. We're, we're close to the crucifixion narrative if you're thinking about where on the timeline are we in the book. And so we've been in this section here where um, the volume has been turned up, tempers have flared. There's all this sort of uh, debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we're coming to the end of that section in our uh, text today. So there's a lot of work to do in this passage, and so I want to get right to it. So if you would pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would, would shape us by his word. Father, we come to you today in the name of your son, Jesus. And uh, we just want to say that there's no other way we could pray if we're not praying by your son, Jesus. Father, we don't deserve to stand in your presence. We don't have any business around you but for your son, Jesus. And so today we ask for mercy because of your son. Today we ask that for the various places of anxiety and doubt and depression and sorrow, would you meet us? For the places of um, stability and confidence and blessing, God, we ask for your mercy not to think that's in and of ourself. And Father, we also ask for your mercy to understand your word today, to understand how you would teach us and speak to us and form us as your people. And so we offer this prayer, not because we're praying, but because of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And we all said, amen, amen. Well, I'll never forget the first time I took uh, my wife on a date. We were juniors in college and... Uh, I had so many emotions and so much nervousness swirling about in my mind and my heart when I took her on that date. And so uh, <laughs> I remember that I had to work that entire day before that evening when I picked her up. And so in my busyness uh, with the job that I had and in my nervousness, 
I managed to make a colossal mistake for a first date, and I didn't eat anything uh, that whole day because I was so nervous and because I was busy at my job. And so when I picked her up to go on the date, you can imagine I'm just absolutely starving, right? And so I wanted to take her to a nice restaurant, a place of, uh, you know, upscale eating where we could all find something on the menu that we would enjoy. And so this is circa 2005. That's Chili's, right? <laughs> That's clearly Chili's, and we're not debating about that. So I thought we could, this would be great. So I'm thinking this is the first day I'm throwing in. Hey, we're getting chips and salsa and skillet queso. We're going big on this deal. And I devoured those chips. I was so hungry. And I can't, <laughs> this is sad, I can't really tell you much of what we talked about that night or the conversation because I was just so busy uh, devouring those chips and then later in the meal dominating my meal when it came. But what I do remember is a question in the middle of all that that shifted the whole evening, right? So at one particular point, we're sitting there eating and I had reached across my plate in a way that managed to get, you know, just sauce all over my sleeve. Tremendous, tremendous thing to do on a first date. And... uh, after how I had been eating and just so hungry, there might have been grace for that in the beginning, but now it's just getting too carried away. My wife, then girlfriend, looks across from me at the table, super grossed out, like just super like, I don't know why I'm here with this person. And she just says, you know, are you in a hurry? And she says it just like that. <laughs> and when she said that, I, I was struck, right? She didn't need to say what she was really thinking, She didn't need to do that. She just had the simple question, are you in a hurry? What she was thinking was, you're an animal. (laughs) And if you'd like a second date, you'll change your eating habits while we're here, right? She didn't need to say what she was really thinking. It all shifted with a single question, right? And all of us know moments like that where maybe you're caught up in a pattern or you're caught up in something and someone just asks you something that's perceptive in the moment and, and it shifts. Well, I bring that up today because that's where we are in the text Here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus has been hunted. Jesus has been interrogated. He's been cross-examined by the religious leaders of his day. They've thrown at him all kinds of questions, and he's returned far more than they've served. In fact, the, the last verse of our passage last week says that after he answered that last question, no one dared ask him any more questions. But now we show up in our passage today, and it's his turn to ask a question. It's his turn. He turns the table. And what's interesting is there's something really terrifying about trying to deal with God. Something terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. Anyone who's ever sort of tried to deal with God knows that when you approach him, it's not so much that you deal with him as that he deals with you. (laughs) Right? That's what's so beautiful and terrifying about it. And so in our text today, Jesus is going to preach his final sermon in the temple. All of this has been happening since chapter 11 in the context of the temple. When he clears it out, he cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers and all the rest. And all this interrogation and cross-examination has been happening in the context of the temple. And now he's going to preach his final sermon there. And it's a short one. We have it here in our passage. And for all the attempts that they've thrown at him to trap him as a fraud, that's what they're trying to do. What's going to happen in this passage, the whole point of it, is that he's going to uncover their hypocrisy. He's going to uncover the hypocrisy of their hearts and their system, and in turn, he's going to uncover our own hypocrisy. And he he starts this, and he does it with a question. Pick up with me in 35. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say, how is it that these Religious teachers, these teachers of the law, the scribes, how is it that they can say that the Christ 
is the son of David? This is his question. How are they teaching this? What's happening is that they wanted a Messiah. This is clear. That's the Jewish expectation is that God would send the anointed one, the Christ. He would bring to them a Messiah. They were looking for God's anointed one. They just didn't think it was Jesus. That's their problem with him. Is he's doing all these kinds of things that would suggest that he is, but they didn't like him. He's this ruddy kid from the backwoods town of Nazareth. Isn't his dad a carpenter? If he's after all his, his dad, wasn't that an illegitimate pregnancy and birth? We don't even know who his dad is. They didn't like Jesus. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted someone to come in and overthrow Rome and restore peace and prosperity to Israel. They wanted someone to do something catastrophic to their enemies. And they didn't like the claims of Jesus to be God. They held him to be a blasphemer. Who are you to claim that you're God? God is one. He's not a man like us. But They were looking for a Messiah. So he asked this question, well, how is it then that these scribes teach you that the Christ is the son of David? Now this question, when he asks it, it's a question that's loaded with rich biblical and historical background. Everyone listening to him would have understand their expectation was that the Messiah, whoever he is and whenever he comes, he was going to come through the family line of King David. And they draw this expectation from the promise that God gave King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to raise one up from your family who will be on your throne forever. This is the Davidic promise of the Old Testament. And so they're looking for someone from the line of David who would be that Messiah. And so this isn't a question that Jesus asks it, that he's intending to leave open-ended. He, he's going to answer this question. It's as though Jesus is saying here at the end of these debates, hey, listen, it's my turn to speak. You've been coming at me with questions, and I've given you some answers. It's, not, it's my turn now to establish the grounds of my authority in this conversation. So pick up with how he explains this in 36. He points out, you're looking for someone from the line of David, but didn't David himself in the Holy Spirit, declared, he's going to quote a psalm here. So what he's suggesting is David himself, the one through whom you're expecting the Messiah to come, didn't he say, inspired by the Holy Spirit, not just out of his own thoughts, but driven forward by God, declare in the psalms, Holy Scripture, didn't he say this? And then he quotes the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110 here pointing out how David said it in the Holy Spirit. There's some tricky language in this psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, what's happening here? David is telling us that the Messiah that is set to come would certainly come through his family line, just like the promise suggests, but he would be so much more than his son. The Messiah, he's saying, would be divine, even God himself. And so the point that is being made here when Jesus teaches this is that if the Messiah, here's what he's confronting, if the Messiah in your minds, scribes, religious leaders, is nothing more than just a man, if he's not more than just a human political figure that you're waiting for, a physical descendant from David, if that's all that he is, then how is it that David says, and David calls to him, Lord? If if all he is is just a human man, then why is David calling this one to come Lord, the last time I checked, no one calls their kids Lord. No one does that. If that's all he is, then why is he calling him Lord? In fact, I've got, I've got four kids at my house. Two of them are, are, are little girls. My little girls are amazing, but they're never going to receive a title in my house greater than their mother's. 
Mama's the queen of the, queen of the house, right? They're never going to get a title bigger than that. They're at best my princesses, and rightly so. They'll be queen someday, but not in my house, right? And so what he, <laughs> amen, right? He says, <laughs> that's awesome. And so what Jesus is doing is he's lifting the veil for them to see even who David understood him to be nearly a thousand years before his arrival. He's saying loud and clear to his skeptics and doubters and everyone listening in that room today and even us today, Jesus is saying, I'm the true son of David. I am the true king, but I'm also God. And just like David came and put all the enemies of God under his feet, that's what I'm gonna do, but you have an enemy bigger You have an enemy bigger than Rome, and you don't like to talk about that. It's the enemy of Satan, sin, and death. Enemies that even David couldn't put to death on his best day. Only God can take care of those enemies, and I'm going to place them underneath my feet. Jesus, who was one unlike any other, fully man, fully God. He's the son of David, but he's also the son of the living God. And so Jesus says to them in that moment, don't you... Don't you believe your own scriptures? Don't you understand your own scriptures? Don't you know what? Don't you know who is standing in front of you even saying this to you? And so they've come to question him, but he's the questioner, <laughs> right? They've come to expose him, but what he's done, even in, his, in, in their own scriptures, he's actually exposed them, and he's not done doing it. This is the rest of the passage, exposing their hypocrisy. Pick up with me in 38. It says, and in his teaching, now this is an important line here, this suggests it's in the same sermon. So it's not like, no, this is a different moment, it's in his teaching, right? It's there in the temple, he just gave it to Psalm 110 defense, and now he keeps going forward, and this is what he says. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, and they have the best seat in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And they like to, or sorry, and they devour the houses of widows. But as a front, as a pretense, they make long prayers. And he says they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, can you imagine how awkward this moment must have been in his sermon? Can you imagine how awkward this must have been? Not only is he warning the people who are listening to him against their own religious leaders, their own teachers of the law, he's doing it while they're sitting in the room. Like he's like, beware of the scribes, the people on the second row over here. I can give you their names to be exact, right? Can you imagine what kind of moment this must have been? And he says, they're in the room and they're looking at them and he says, they like to walk around in their flashy clothes. And they make a scene in the marketplace with their social graces. And they like to make long prayers in public to give off the impression that everything is okay and my life is just so. And so you should trust and submit to me as a religious leader. He says they manipulate their position and their reputation. They take advantage of these things so they can have the best seats at the dinner parties in the city. And you can almost hear the echoes of that other passage of scripture that's got the warning Where it says that though they have the appearance of godliness, they're actually denying its power. They've got all the trappings on the outside, but it's dead bones on the inside. 
Though everything may appear to be well and good on the outside, the external forms, their religion and their hearts are closed off to God and his Christ. He says, watch out for them. He says they actually neglect the things that God really cares about, even to the point in verse 40, he says, while all of this is happening that seems of the pomp and circumstance and well and good, what's happening under the surface is that the homes of widows are being devoured. They're oppressing the vulnerable among them. And he says, don't be fooled. They will receive the greater condemnation. God isn't fooled by them, and they're not going to keep getting away with their spiritual manipulation. It won't happen. This is a heavy moment. You, you surely could have heard a pin drop in the temple that day when Jesus says this. And there's some speculation among scholars as to, like, what exactly does it mean that they were devouring the homes of widows? But I'm persuaded that what he's talking about is actually going to be illustrated in the next verse. If we keep reading this from this verse to the next, where this verse leaves off with the homes of widows have been devoured by these religious fraud, the next verse picks up with an actual account of a widow. So pick up with me in 41. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had and all that she had to live on. Notice what's happening here. Jesus finishes his sermon. He walks out of the temple, presumably across the street sits down and looks back and people are coming by the temple putting their money in the offering box. And he's sitting there and he sees several wealthy people coming by putting in, apparently he can tell what they're putting in, large gifts. And they're doing so in a way that doesn't hurt them. They're hardly feeling the sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice at all, in fact. But then behind them, he sees this poor widow coming along to put money in the box. In fact, he says she put in all she had to live on, everything that she had. Now, if you've been around church before, you've probably heard this passage taught, and it's typically taught in one of two ways. Well, see what the widow did. See how she gave sacrificially. Now, we ought to do the same thing. Go be like the widow. With your tithes and your offerings, you need to give sacrificially just like the widow. We use her as an example. That's one way this has been taught. Another way this has historically been taught is Jesus doesn't actually care about the size of the gifts that you offer in your financial giving. He cares about your heart. And so the widow, what she's doing there is an expression of her heart. She's giving everything. So you should be like the widow and give everything to God. Now what's difficult about where that's been taught is that both of those things are actually biblical teachings, right? You should give sacrificially and you should give your everything to Jesus from your heart. The problem is those are biblical teachings just not from this passage, that's not what this passage is about. If you look at this passage in context, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders. They're cross-examining him. They're coming after him. Now he's stepping up to give them a rebuke for all of their hypocrisy and their rejection of him as the true and greater son of David. And then this passage becomes clear. This widow giving her money now becomes the instance where we see the hard evidence of what he just rebuked them about. The homes of widows being devoured. Now, listen, 
track with this because we're about to lower this into our laps here. There's absolutely something commendable about the widow. Clearly she had great faith. Clearly she's trusting God to take care of her needs, right? Jesus actually speaks of her in a positive way. But what's happening here, don't miss the larger point. What Jesus is saying is this. See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This corrupt system of worship that the scribes have propped up is bringing oppression and despair. While many people are coming and contributing out of their abundance, here comes this poor widow who, instead of being assisted by the community of God, has actually been deceived into thinking that unless she gives this, she'll have no peace with God. And now she's broke. She's given all that she had to live on, and her house has been devoured by these religious thieves. And he says, listen, beware of these scribes. They will receive their greater condemnation. See the passage flowing together. Of all the people in Israel... Of all the people of Israel, the scribes knew the Old Testament law. They knew exactly what the law teaches. They were the teachers of the law. There's three categories of people that God says, I want you to protect in vulnerable populations. I want you to protect orphans. I want you to protect widows. And I want you to protect strangers or refugees. Three categories of people the Old Testament law says explicitly, I want you to protect them and defend them. God wanted his people to be different. Don't gobble up the vulnerable. Don't push them to the side and out of the way. Bring them in. Take care of them. So here's what's happening. The scribes had chosen to highlight the parts of the law that fit their purposes. They'd chosen to highlight the parts of the law that built them up, that gave them flashy clothes and the best seats at dinner parties. They chose to highlight the parts of the law that were convenient to them, but they chose to neglect the harder parts of the law, i.e. caring for widows, that wasn't a direct benefit to them. And meanwhile, the home of this poor widow has now been devoured. This whole text is about Jesus uncovering hypocrisy. And he opens this now with this word, beware. Right? He says, beware of this. Watch out. Be on guard, right? And he calls out the scribes, but he's also talking to everyone who's hearing his voice. Watch out. Be on guard. He's waving his arms to say, check yourself too. This was not just a rebuke to the scribes. It's a rebuke to anyone who's listening to him who might follow their pattern, right? So maybe a way to say it for you and me. Beware of the appearance of godliness, but the denial of its power. I want to try to shape this in different ways, maybe to drop it into our chest today. Hey, beware of believing all the right things, but being unmoved and unformed by them under the surface. Beware. Beware of settling, <laughs> saying something that's right in the heart of Bible Belt Christianity. Beware of settling for external morality. But under the surface, you're constantly judgmental, comparing yourself against other people to make sure that you're not as bad as them. Your heart's unformed, but the externals are just enough so to keep getting by. He says, beware. Maybe another way of saying this. Beware of exchanging discipleship to Jesus for political alignment and mistaking the two as though they're the same thing. 
Because after all, don't you know that when you exchange discipleship to Jesus for political alignment, you only become an anxious, vicious person to those who don't think like you. And that doesn't look like Jesus. Beware of being content merely with the good opinions of people around you when you know good and well that you are not who they think you are under the surface. You think yourself good, you call yourself good because they think of you as good and the opinions are good. However, you know that if they knew the real you, they would have very different information. Jesus says, beware. Man, as I like tried to get this into my own chest, it like, like it's, not, it's not difficult to figure out why popular culture likes to make jokes about Christians. Right? Because we're a people who profess powerful things. We're a people who rightly confess powerful things. The problem is we're a people who are too little formed by the things we confess. And so we look like a joke. We look like a joke. The reason that Jesus pushes so hard against hypocrisy here is not just because you're lying to God or lying to yourself. The reason he pushes so hard is because, listen to this, none of us get to sin in isolation. None of us get to sin in isolation. We're a communal people. So when you sin, you think it's just about you, but your sin has communal ramifications because you act out of that sin with the people around you. But like the scribes then, just like us today, we're experts in justifying ourselves, aren't we? Like we're experts in going, well, you know. We all like to think that there's these private areas of our life where we're free to do whatever we want so long as no one else gets hurt. We all like to think that we have these little stowaways that we can do some stuff over here and give ourselves a pass and excuse ourselves because after all, no one's getting hurt. The problem is, whatever you're cultivating under the surface, wherever you're farming yourself out in secret, will demand a way out. It demands a way out. It's bigger than you. Your pride is bigger than you. Your greed is bigger than you. My greed, it's bigger. Lust, anger, it's all bigger than you. None of those things, none of those things, no matter how hard we try or how hard we want to justify ourselves, none of those things stay under the surface. They demand to come out. They demand it. And we all know this is true because every one of us in this room has been hurt by somebody who's acted out of those things against us. And we've hurt other people when we've acted out of those things ourselves. You see it. I could give multiple examples of this. Pornography is really clear. Is one of just, I zeroed in on this week. The reason that our sense of entitlement to consume whatever kind of sexual experience we want is such an offense to God is not just because of the sin involved personally, but it's also about the fact that you're beginning to see people on the screen and see people around you who, by the way, were made in the image of God as objects to be consumed based on their sexual availability or attractiveness, whichever fits your preferences or curiosities in the moment. And whether we want to admit it or not, with every click of the button, we become complicit with the industry of sex trade and trafficking an industry that preys on the vulnerable. 
the homes of widows are devoured. Jesus lifts the veil on their pretense of religion, and he lifts the veil on ours, and he gets to the heart, doesn't he? (laughs) And so here's where I want to land today. What do you do? What do you do when your hypocrisy is exposed? What do you do? Remember how this passage began? Jesus opens his sermon with the psalm that proclaims himself as the true and greater son of David who will put all of our enemies under his feet. Satan, sin, and death. And the reason that Jesus fulfilling that promise of David is such a big deal and such good news for us is because that promise was about much more than just someone sitting on the throne forever. It was about that too. But God promised that he would raise up one from the line of David. And here's the big news of the promise, why it's such good news for us. And God said, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now lean in as to why that's good news. Because the base reason for your hypocrisy and mine, we act out in various ways. But there's a base reason for all of us why we, why we chase hypocrisy, why we give ourselves a sneaky out at times. It's because deep down you don't believe that God will really provide for your needs or your longings, and so you've got to excuse your way out to make a way for yourself. And the reason why this promise is such good news is with Jesus as the greater son of David, this means that the one who has come for us to defeat our enemies is also the one who's come for us to make his father our father. Maybe just to put it in a simple line, the one who sees through you, and let's be clear, he does see through us. The one who sees through you is also the one who's come to save you. He sees through your fronts, but he also stands to save. Here's a question for you. What if you really believed? Like all of us have these places. Like there's no one in here that's like, yeah, those hypocrites, that's all of us. What if you really believed? that every longing and impulse of your heart could be met in the presence of the Father? What if you believed it? So the answer is not, well, let me explain myself and let me justify myself and let me negotiate myself. And here's why we do that, because that just feels easier. It's like a quick fix to numb the conscience in a moment. But doesn't it betray you? The answer is not negotiate, justify, and explain. The answer is walk your shadow into his light and say help. The better thing than covering yourself with a patchwork righteousness that you make for yourself is being covered with the righteousness of Jesus in plain sight. Amen. The one who sees through you also saves you. And how does he do that? Broken body, shed blood, and an empty tomb. He paid the debt, and the debt was paid in full. Let's pray. Take a second and just maybe offer your own prayer to God.
Father, we ask now that you would, (laughs) God, we ask that you would save us from hypocrisy. Would you save us from being a people? We're so prone to this, God, and we just ask forgive us. We're so prone to be a people who just settle for the appearances of godliness, but we actually deny its power to form us and to shape us. God, would you save us from that? And God, thank you so much that you don't abandon us when you expose us. (laughs) You actually do that to bring us wholeness and liberty and freedom and restoration. So God, I I pray for us today. Would you please to help us take our masks off and to walk our shadow into your light? We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.